So uh, Nehemiah has echoing in his mind something like the words that Peter gave us at the end of his letter, which are true for Nehemiah, but they're true for each one of us. Certainly true for David and Sarah up here as they carry their backpacks. This is what he said. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. That's a word that Nehemiah needed to hear as we move into chapter 6. We've had an invitation into reading bits and pieces of Nehemiah's incredibly personal journal, which have now ended up in our Bible for us to talk about and think about and reflect on and begin to let these words fill us with hope and courage. Because in these last few weeks, we've seen Nehemiah's call and this deep burden he had for the people in Jerusalem and the fact that the city was in disarray, the wall was broken down, they were vulnerable to all sorts of enemies that prowl around like a roaring lion, wanting to devour them. And that passion led to his call, this divine call, this sense from God that he had a destiny and that he was going to help provide a place that was safe for people with burdens where they could work out their faith and learn what it looks like to thrive as the people of God. That's the purpose of God for each one of us. And yet there's an enemy that wants to take us down. In Nehemiah 6, we discover that the wall's almost complete. The, the project is almost finished. But now the opposition gets desperate. That's the way it happens a lot of times. At the end of a project, we're tired. We've been working hard. There's all sorts of reasons that are tempting us to want to give up. And these enemies of Nehemiah and the people in Jerusalem, they're angry and they go after him. This chapter is like a mystery thriller. And in it, there's intimidation, there's attempted murder, there's discouragement, there's lots of fear, and there's this challenge of just wanting to quit. So the chapter really is full of the distractions that keep you and I from finishing the job. The job that God's called us to do. The unique role that God has put us on this planet to fulfill. And I see in here, in his journal, three vignettes about these distractions. One has to do with hidden agendas. The second has to do with rumors, false rumors. And the third is this temptation to compromise when we're nearing the finish line. So Nehemiah's word for us today is don't get distracted. Finish. That's our encouragement today, is to finish what God has called you to do. And I would imagine in this room this morning, in our community, there's people that have been beat up. They're tired, easily discouraged. And Nehemiah's life is going to be an encouragement to keep Ongoing. The Dodgers needed that, right? We need that. Tonight, they, they, they got to they gotta finish the job. Friday night, 18 innings. Are you kidding me? How long did they need to finish the job? 
Boston, they were thinking of putting their mascot out to pitch. They'd run out of players. <laughs> but they didn't quit, did they? And right now, the Dodgers need to bear down. Let me ask you, what's your great project? What, what, what's the grand project that your life is all about? Now, it may not be like Nehemiah as the governor rebuilding the city. It might be raising a family. It might be teaching in the classroom. It might be keeping a nonprofit going in the right direction, even when it feels like it's fallen apart. It might be your business. God has put a, a burden on your heart. You have this dream, this vision. Don't give up. It really is behind why we do all this talk about the spiritual giftings and inclinations and talents and abilities and supernatural sort of like leaning towards certain things. It's why we do this, because every single one of us, like a puzzle piece in an unfinished jigsaw puzzle, we have a place. And as Denise reminded us, God gives us these gifts for the common good. He gives us gifts to give away. And God has called us as a community to bring the light of Jesus into our neighborhoods. And he's called you along into that story and given you gifts. And God never gives us a calling. He never gives us a challenge without at the same time also giving us the right kind of gifts to get the job done. So let's jump into the story. I see the first distraction that Nehemiah talks about here is agendas. Look at verse 1. When the word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it. The job's almost done. And then he says, though at that time, I'd not yet set the doors in the gates. So they're still vulnerable. That Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. And here's the message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. It sounds like a reasonable diplomatic request. Judah's rising again. Jerusalem has a fortified wall, and we're up in Samaria and the other neighboring nations. We need to get the leaders together, and we need to do some negotiation, maybe some trading policies here. They're desperate. But Nehemiah thinks about this. It's the plain of Ono, 25, 30 miles northeast of Jerusalem. It's actually on the edge of enemy territory. And he's thinking, they're pulling me out of Jerusalem. They're pulling me out of my job, away from the work, away from the support and the protection of my team. And here they are taking me out into this place. He has this sense. There's an agenda going on here. And he says in verse 2, but they were scheming to harm me. They wanted to pull Nehemiah away so they could kill him. And that's often what the enemy does. That's what these distractions actually have behind them sometimes, is that if we can't stop the project, then the, the opposition is going to go after the leader, going to go after the point person. And the devil is an enemy that wants to stop what God has called you to do. And let's be honest, we all have agendas, don't we? In our relationships with one another and in our working settings, we, we have agendas. Agendas are good. 
Yeah, you know, you, you got to have an agenda. Your, your, your call lays itself out in an agenda. The problem is when there's hidden agendas, you know, sort of a secret or ulterior motive to get what we want at the cost of another person. And that's what sand ballot was all about. There's hidden agendas all over the place at work, at school, between parents and teachers and administrators. In dating relationships, there's agendas, sometimes hidden agendas. It's really difficult to navigate them. There's hidden agendas in the church. We have to be honest about them because the reality is, is that hidden agendas can kill a project, can stop a vision, can bring discouragement and division and disunity, and it can also kill a leader. And that's what they were trying to do. But I want you to notice his response in verse 3. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Isn't that fantastic? The sense of his destiny and his calling. I'm carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. And then he goes on to say, why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you. He detected the hidden agenda. But Nehemiah was focused on the mission. Some agendas are evil, and we need to run from them. We need to call them out and don't get sucked in. Sometimes people's agendas are just not your priority right now. And you have to, with Nehemiah, have the ability to say, that is not my agenda right now. That's not my priority right now. I'm not going to get distracted and go down that road, even though it may look like a good opportunity. It was Henry David Thoreau who said, it is not enough to be busy. So are the ants. What are we busy about is the question he asks. We can be busy about so many things that we scurry around like ants and we lose focus on the mission at hand. So let me ask you, whose agenda is distracting you from God's calling in your life? What voices in your head are getting you to get off the mark and miss what God wants you to do? Nehemiah wants us to stay on track. He wants us to finish the project. He wants us to re-clarify. When Cynthia and I were serving a church in Kansas City, I was a youth pastor, and we dreamed up a ski trip with high school kids from Kansas City going west up into the Rocky Mountains and skiing in Breckenridge. And we wanted to do it cheap, and so... My buddy Michael and I went and hunted down an old school bus that we could get and put the kids in. We had 25 kids, some leaders. We had 30, 35 kids in this bus. And it was an overnight trip driving across the wastelands of western Kansas on I-70. In the middle of the night with storm and ice, they shut I-70 down and made us divert off into this little town. Where are we going to stay? I called around. Finally, the police officers allowed us to come to the police station. These 30 of us, they said, you can go down and rest in the basement. Well, the basement was also where the, 
the, the jails were for the drunks and the local criminals. And so they're in there clanging on the gates. And all our high school kids are grabbing cots and, and resting up. And finally, the weather clears, and we get going on I-70. And I think they put a governor on this bus because it really couldn't get over 45 miles an hour. And I mean, this trip is taking hours upon hours of delay. We're now making our way up the Rocky Mountains, and now the bus is whittled down to about 25 miles an hour. Everyone's tired. They're griping. People are critical. I could have done something so much better with my spring break than this stupid bus. And Michael, the driver's up there. You know, I mean, he's been awake. And he's so tired. And we finally get to the top of the Rocky Mountains, you know, to Eisenhower Tunnel. And there, where you go through the tunnel, you can drop down into Breckenridge. And he pulled the bus over in Eisenhower Tunnel and shut the engine off and said, that's it. I'm not driving this bus another foot. I'm thinking, we're so close. What are we going to do? And I, I go, you know, my friend Jeff Smith, he's a ski instructor in Breckenridge. I invited him to be the speaker on the trip. So I called him up. I said, Jeff, we're in a pickle. He says, I got it. 20 minutes later, we're waiting. Kids are playing in the snow. All of a sudden, this giant steak truck with tons of construction trash comes driving up the hill. And it's Jeff waving his hand. He says, come on, everyone. We dumped all the luggage in this steak truck, then put the kids on top of that. They're all bundled up in their ski stuff. And we drove down into Breckenridge with kids standing up and cheering and hooting and hollering. I'm sure. The mountain thought we'd driven across I-70 in this state truck. Sometimes people's agenda and their criticism, they're going to they're gonna tempt you to give up and not finish the task. It might be someone else's agenda, but it also could be your foggy focus. Maybe at times we've gotten beat up and we've lost a clarity on what God has called us to do. And I'll tell you, I think Manny Machado on Friday night, he lost focus. Remember, he hit that beautiful uh, long ball in the left field. He, he thought it was going over the fence. He thought it was a home run. And what did he do? He started the home run jog to first base. He got his eyes off of the mission. They didn't need home runs. They needed base runners. And he could have been on second base. And he was stopped at first because his vision was cloudy. Nehemiah says, four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer because he was focused on the mission. People's agenda are going to sidetrack you and distract you. But not only that, Nehemiah was subject to rumors, false rumors. If you're a leader, there's going to be rumors. Notice what he says in verse 5. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message. This time in his hand was an unsealed letter. It's like an open letter. Anyone can read it along the way. It's the equivalent of putting it out there on the internet for the world to see. It was an unsealed letter in which was written. And this is what was on the letter. Notice the rumor, the false rumor. The letter says, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true. Oh, well, in that case, if Geshem says it's true, it must be true. That you and the Jews are plotting to revolt 
And therefore, that's why you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. Nehemiah is like, you are totally misunderstanding and misrepresenting my motives. I had a great job back in Susa with King Artaxerxes, and he sent me as the governor to help these people and to rebuild the city. I have no intention of rebelling or leading these people in a rebellion. We have the permission of the king. It's incredibly frustrating when you get accused of something that you never intended to do. If you look ahead a little bit at verse 17, 18, and 19, you'll see that there were letters flying back and forth between Tobiah and some of those uh, tight-fisted, scarcity mindset nobles that James was talking about last week. And Nehemiah had confronted them in their selfishness and their oppression financially of those poor people in Jerusalem. And he called them out. And there's the potential that they were angry and they wanted to be part of this rumor mongering about Nehemiah. Our words are powerful. In fact, in the letter of James, chapter 3, verse 6, he says, Our, the, the tongue is like a fire. What we say to and about one another, whether it's face-to-face or out in a public arena, it really matters. And again, notice how our leader, Nehemiah, responds in verse 8. I love this. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. Isn't that great? I love it. Like if you're a student in class, your teacher accuses you of cheating. You know, you just say... Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just imagining it in your head. Or maybe you could do it if you uh, are audited by the IRS uh, this next year. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. See, some critics we need to listen to because they have good information for us and we need to learn and be humble. Sometimes we need to just give a gentle reply with some more information for them. But sometimes, often, we just need to ignore critics. And always we need to endure critics because they'll never go away. It's part of the landscape of being involved in great projects. Alan Redpath was a pastor in England, and then he got involved with Young Life in the UK, and eventually he was a pastor at the Moody Bible Church in Chicago. And he said that we ought to think before we speak. And it's an acrostic. Think before you speak. T, is it true? H, is it helpful? I, is it inspiring? N, is it necessary? And K, is it kind? And if it doesn't pass the think test, then maybe we ought not 
to say it. Verse 9, Nehemiah acknowledges they're just trying to frighten us. Their hands will get too weak for the work, they think, and it will not be completed. That's sometimes why people challenge our motives. They have this hidden agenda to discourage us, to defeat us, and keep us from doing what God has called us to do. But notice how Nehemiah doesn't waste any time on self-pity. See, he has his mind on something much grander and larger, the call of God in his life. And he knew that sometimes God's call and God's mission and God's grand story will include our suffering. It will include confusing, discouraging times. But Nehemiah, rather than say, oh, poor me, he knew that his story was caught up in a bigger story and it allowed him not to respond to the critics. But verse 9, he says, but I prayed, now strengthen my hands. Now strengthen my hands. Why did he pray that? Because he knew what I need to do is not get all caught up in the criticism and the false rumors. I need to get busy because I'm carrying on a great project and I cannot be distracted. One time I was riding my bicycle on the Strand. I was in Hermosa Beach on a sunny Sunday afternoon in the summer, and it was packed and crowded. You know how it is. And then there's so many bodies that were going one or two miles an hour. And a rollerblader came and jostled everyone, and a woman landed on me. I moved back. She landed on the ground, and she shattered her elbow. She went to uh, the doctors and... A week later, I get a phone call from her. I, I, I just kind of wonder what kind of a person you are. I know you're a pastor, and I don't have insurance, and I don't have a job, and, you know, you were there. I broke my elbow. Could you, could you like, here's my bills. Could you pay them? I'm like, I'm really sorry. I, I, uh, I feel badly for you, but that accident was not my responsibility. Here's the reality. I stayed to help her, to see if she could need some assistance. And in fact, other people had left and I, I, I remained. And then the lifeguard was filling out his paperwork and he said, hey, you, you were here during the accident. What, what's your name? And I'm so naive, you know. Yeah, well, I told him my name, what, your phone number and address. And I, I gave him all that. Two weeks later, I get a summons to Torrance Superior Court where she's going to sue me. What she said was $85,000 in in bills. And I'm thinking in my head, I could have rode away like everyone else, but I stayed to help you, and now you're suing me? Two days in a uh, Torrance Superior courtroom, I'm behind the desk in a chair feeling guilty just by sitting there with all these expert witnesses, and there's a jury gathered to make a determination on whether she now doesn't want 85, but with her attorney and expert witnesses, it's grown well over $150,000. In the end, they said, we believe him. We've been on that strand. Don't ride your bike on the strand without insurance and without a job unless you want to pay your own bills. But isn't that the way it is sometimes? You know, my response in my head was, well, that just goes to show you what kind of world we live in. I'm not going to help anyone anymore. Isn't that terrible? But that's the way sometimes things work. I can imagine Nehemiah saying, I don't get it. I'm here to help, and now I'm accused of rebellion. 
If you're a leader, if you're attempting a great project, if you have your eyes fixed on doing something that is worthy of doing, it's inevitable someone's going to question your motives. And one of the best ways to deal with critics is just to keep your hands in the project and get it done. Completed projects silence the critics. But there's one last one. There's people's agendas that really are selfish and able to hurt you. There, there's rumors, there's false stories that go around checking, questioning your motives. But finally, there's the temptation to compromise. There's compromise. Verse 10, one day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabal, who was shut in at his house. And he said to me, he gave me an invitation. He said, hey, let's meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors. Why? Because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. He's invited to, to, to run and flee, you know, from, from these, these attackers and hide in the, in the center of the temple near the altar. And Nehemiah in his head, he's going, wait a minute. This is a temptation to compromise because, number one, only priests are allowed in that part of the temple. And I'm not a priest. I'm a, I'm a politician. So if I go there, I'm, I'm going to be breaking God's law. And he had determined... He would not compromise his convictions about God's law. Secondly, he had the reputation of being a person that was not afraid. I'm not going to run and hide. I have a role as a leader of these people, and I'm not going to cower in fear because those attackers want to come and hurt me. And thirdly, he was a man who trusted God. My life is under the care of God, and I'm going to keep moving forward in light of that potential fear, and I will not compromise. What does he say? Verse 11, he says, Should a man like me run away, or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. Because I realized God had not sent him. I realized instead that he'd been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. I'm carrying on a great project and I cannot come down. I will not compromise. General George S. Patton, Jr., He's the one who said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. At the end of a project, we've been working hard. We're tired. We're worn out. The finish line is right there, but we just kind of want to quit. Or we're tempted to take a shortcut. Don't take a shortcut on the way to the goal line. Stay true. Don't compromise. Finish well. A lot of you know, Cynthia and I just finished a really enjoyable kind of trip of a lifetime to Italy. And uh, we celebrated our birthdays. That's not why we went there. But on my birthday, our Airbnb host told us, you ought to take the mountain bikes and climb that mountain. Yeah, let's do it. And Cynthia said, yeah, it's your birthday. Sure, let's go. And we took off up this mountain. It turned out to be a real mountain, like over 3,500 feet of climbing and hairpin turns. And it just kept going and going and going. 
And it's kind of like, ah, do we really want to finish this? This is hard. And I did tell Cynthia, I said, you know, hey, anytime you want to quit, it's all right. We'll turn around because it's all downhill going home. No, I don't want to quit. It's your birthday. Let's, let's make it to the top. And we've been told there was a gravel road at the top that would take us around a loop and then back down the hill. And we couldn't find it. We've been going for hours. We're tired. We're discouraged. We're running out of water. Cynthia says, I, I, I want to keep going. But you know, the husband can begin to detect in his wife's murmurs and in her posture that, you know what, this is really getting hard. I'm, I'm not sure I want to do this. And I could feel it any moment. Like if we didn't find the, the summit and this road was not getting us down. It just kept climbing further and further. And we stopped and we rest. And I said, I'm not going to make a promise, but I'm going to predict up there around that ridge. See that valley? I think the summit is up there. We rode the 200 meters. And I'm praying, God, please, please <laughs> let it be the summit for my wife's sake. And there it was, the hill crested. We'd already ridden 15 miles uphill, so we proceeded to take a left-hand turn, and we rode 15 miles just flying down these beautiful bends with nothing but Italian vistas and vineyards in front of us. It was so fun, so rewarding. And we almost quit 200 meters from the top. Now, what if we would have quit? We would have missed all of that. Nehemiah says, don't give up. Stay focused. Finish well. One of my professors at Fuller, Bobby Clinton, taught us leadership. And he taught us about the characteristics of leaders who finish well. And here's a couple. They cultivate a vibrant personal relationship with God right up to the end. Don't quit loving Jesus. They maintain a learning posture and can learn from all kinds of sources. When you stop learning, you stop living. They stay connected with transparency and vulnerability to an authentic community. That's our drive and our desire here that, that no one would love life alone, that we could, we could share our backpacks with one another. We have people with ministries of care and love that want to come alongside and listen. Truth is lived out in their lives so that convictions and the promises of God are seen to be real. Is this real for me? And they walk with a growing awareness of a sense of destiny. That was Nehemiah. He knew he had a call in his life, that he had a destiny. And that's the call that God is cultivating in your life. You have a divine destiny to live out. Well, the story concludes. Verse 14, God, remember Tobiah and Samballot because of what they've done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall, verse 15, was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. October 485 B.C. It's their birthday sort of around today. 
And then get this. When the wall was finished, verse 16, all our enemies heard about this. All the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence. Why? Because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. There is something so thrilling about being caught up in what God is doing and saying, God, here, take my life. Take how you've wired and molded me. I want the worship team, Jasmine, come on up. You guys get ready. They rebuilt the wall in 52 days. Now, our projects are probably going to take longer than that, but God is in your project. God is laying his hand on your life. You have a unique contribution to make. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't stop. There's discouragement. There's criticism. There's people. Stay connected to transparent, authentic, vulnerable community. And together, we support one another. Get a grip on your project. Get clarity. Get focus in your mind. But more than that, let the project get a grip on you. Let it, let it consume your life. This is, this is God's will. This is the direction my life is going right now. But maybe even more important than that, let Jesus get a grip on you. Leaders who finish well stay intimate and close to Jesus in a very real and tangible way. The team's going to lead us in singing this amazing song about focus. And I just want to invite you to let the Holy Spirit guide Mold your thinking, clarify your thinking, bolster your trust. Uh, in this venue, we're not going to celebrate communion today, but we're going to celebrate our collective um, sharing together in the life of Jesus as we worship and as we sing. Lead us, will you?